Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. We're here on episode 41 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're fortunate to be joined again by Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation to discuss the recent Supreme Court of the United States decision handled by his firm, Cedar Point versus Hasid. Uh, we discussed the oral argument with Wen uh, on episode 18 of the show, and we thank him for coming back to discuss the decision that was uh, handed down a couple weeks ago at the end of June. This case, like the one we discussed on Monday with Louis Castoria, the AFP versus Bonta case, involves a California regulation, and like that case, the courts split 6-3 in favor of the petitioners. Wen, could you give us a brief background uh, of the facts of the case, who your clients were, and what this regulation was that you all were challenging? Absolutely. So our clients are California uh, agricultural businesses um, we represent two plaintiffs in this case, uh, Fowler Packing Company, that it's a uh, grower down in Fresno, California, that uh, packs and ships um, table grapes and mandarin oranges. And we also have Cedar Point Nursery, a grower uh, in Doris, California, right by the California-Oregon border. Uh, it's a place that grows strawberry plants for other places to grow into strawberries. So um, our clients uh, are challenging a California access regulation that allows union organizers to go onto the private property of agricultural businesses in California for three hours per day and 120 days per year. And we and the, the plaintiffs are affected by this regulation because uh, in 2015, during a busy harvest season, Union organizers came on to the private property of Cedar Point Nursery at 5 a.m. with bullhorns, uh, scaring and intimidating many of the workers that were uh, busy, um, uh, you know, uh, preparing for the busy harvest season. And uh, we filed shortly after that in February 2016 to stop the regulation, and we challenged it as a per se taking under the Fifth Amendment. And you, you mentioned uh, the, the, the government in this case, when I think argued for a balancing test to apply, they said it wasn't a permanent physical invasion. You mentioned per se, but can you describe the two different kinds of tests per se and balancing and, and what the difference is and how the courts go about applying those two? Yeah, of course. So uh, there are two basically buckets of uh, tests in evaluating takings claim. One is the uh, per se physical takings test in which the government is obligated to compensate the property owner. So for example, you can imagine a government entity that either uh, takes your house or takes a, a property interest like an easement uh, across your, your house, uh, across your property for whatever reason. Uh, in those cases, the government has committed what's called a physical taking and is obligated to compensate the property owner. There's a second type of taking called a regulatory taking, 
which is analyzed under the multi-factor balancing test set forth in a case called Penn Central. And so when we deal with a case involving, for example, a zoning ordinance, courts will usually apply this regulatory takings analysis to consider factors like investment-backed expectations of the property owner uh, and, and things of that sort. Basically, a, a, a government action is considered a regulatory taking uh, when it goes too far. And the problem with that balancing test is that it's notoriously hostile to property owners. Property owners can lose uh, upwards of 95% in property value. They can lose millions of dollars of prop value in their property and not receive a penny uh, in compensation under that multi-factor balancing test. The, um, the court in this case decided that this was a per se physical taking. And you contrasted the difference between the regulatory and the physical takings between, you know, the government wants to build a road, it take confiscates your entire property or a part of your property, it invades it permanently, or it has an easement like in uh, Nolan, I think it was, where they had an easement to get to the beach. And so they, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, people could come across the land to get to the beach of, of, the, of the plaintiff's uh, property. Here, it was only... Um, as you say, only uh, three hours a day, 120 days a year. So what was its reasoning for them to find that this was, because that was the threshold question. Was this a per se taking or was this a regulatory taking? And the dissenters will get to them, but they were of the camp that it was a regulatory taking. Um, what was the reasoning for the majority to find that this was a per se physical taking? Well, I think the reasoning adopted by the Supreme Court was that it, it eliminated the grower's right to exclude um, in a way that amounts to a physical taking. Uh, you know, when we think about property rights, a useful metaphor that has been thrown around is a bundle of sticks. And the court has said that uh, the right to exclude is one of the most fundamental rights uh, to that bundle of sticks, in that bundle of sticks, because if you don't have the right to exclude another person uh, from your property, then it's really not your property. And I think here uh, the court recognized that the growers, uh, as demonstrated by the facts of this case, had no right to exclude unwanted third party union organizers from taking access to their property. And therefore, I think the court held quite correctly that this amounts to a physical uh, taking and any limits, any time limits that were imposed only went to the amount of compensation that was just and not to whether there was a taking in the first place. So with that, when we're going to take our first break and come back and talk about the right to exclude, because you said it's a right to exclude third parties, and there was some discussion at the oral argument about, well, how far does that go if the petitioners that you represented win, uh, if, if they win, and they did, how far does that really go and what can really, what, what might be the result down the line? So we'll come back and talk about that on the other side of the break. And we're back for segment two of the Podium and Panel podcast, episode 41. We're joined today by Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation. And we're discussing the recent SCOTUS case, Cedar Point versus Hasid. Uh, when at oral argument, there was a lot of discussion about a parade of horribles of all kinds of government regulations, from nuclear power plant inspections to food safety and everything in between. 
that would be subject to attack, uh, depending on the outcome of this case. How did the majority deal with that objection that was raised at oral argument? Yes, I think the majority adopted the arguments we made in, in our briefs uh, addressing those parade of horribles. Uh, there are many, uh, I think, exceptions that were noted in the majority opinion, and I wouldn't even necessarily call them exceptions. I, th I think they're more appropriately called an application of uh, the rules, traditional property rules. For example, the court mentioned background principles. Uh, at common law, no one had the right to use his property uh, to create a nuisance for uh, adjoining property owners. And the court said, if you did not have that, possess that property right at common law, you did not somehow gain it within the past, uh, you know, uh, 200 plus years. Uh, and I think, but I think that's quite different uh, from the facts of this case, where the growers are engaged in productive exercises they are not creating a nuisance for any adjoining property owner. Another uh, way that the court, another exception that was noted by the court is what I call the constitutional conditions doctrine. So the government as a part of its licensing scheme could uh, require property owners to, uh, you know, make certain accommodations that are, that both bear an excess to the actual license itself and is also proportional um, to that nexus. So for example, you talk about nuclear power plants. The court noted that operating a nuclear power plant is considered by many to be an inherently dangerous activity and as a condition for being granted a license for operating that nuclear power plant, the government can reasonably uh, reasonably uh, create an inspection system where the inspectors come onto the property uh, you know, once every year or so to inspect the premises for, for safety, uh, potential safety violations. And similarly, on that point, the court also noted that at common law, you know, you had this notion of reasonable searches that was incorporated by the Fourth Amendment. And if something were a reasonable search, it cannot violate one's uh, property rights. It could not also be a taking uh, under the Fifth Amendment. Uh, because of that common law background. So there are a lot of ways that the court dealt with these parade of horribles. These uh, parade of horribles were thrown around a lot um, by both the dissent and you know commentators in the lead up to oral argument. But I think upon closer inspection, there really isn't really much um, that hasn't been addressed by the court and by our briefs in the case. So, so when you you alluded to it moment uh, a minute ago, but I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk more about that because at the district court level, and if I'm correct, please correct me if I'm wrong. At the Ninth Circuit, you argued both a Fourth Amendment and a Fifth Amendment violation, but at the cert stage, you dropped the Fourth Amendment argument and focused entirely on the Fifth Amendment argument. Did, did I get that procedure and and your and how the argument evolved about yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. So. Tell us more about how the Fourth Amendment, even though you didn't bring it as a as a direct claim, kind of forms a background principle for the decision and, and the framework for reasonableness that we find. Because reasonableness doesn't appear with regards to the nature of a taking under the Fifth Amendment. Reasonableness shows up, the word is there, in the Fourth Amendment about the ability of the government to, to, uh, to seize somebody or something. So tell, expand on that a little bit more, because I think it infor one informs the other, as you said. Right. So, so I want to be uh, uh, 
very clear about sort of the different claims that we brought in our arguments uh, at the merit stage. So it, it's true that we brought a Fourth Amendment claim uh, in the courts below. Uh, we actually brought that as an unreasonable seizure of property in the courts below. Uh, the background principle that was mentioned by the Chief Justice uh, in his opinion for the court was one that we argued if, if it were a reasonable search, then it would not typically violate the Fifth Amendment. And I think that makes sense intuitively. And I think it's quite, quite uh, different from the facts here, where, you know, the growers actually do allow uh, inspectors onto their property, they allow uh, what would be considered reasonable searches. But here, the union organizers that take access, um, pursuant to this regulation, they're expressly not there for the purpose of conducting a search, uh, whether it would be a search to promote uh, health and safety or anything else. When there was discussion, especially by Justices Kavanaugh and Sotomayor at oral argument, and I think at the lower court levels as well, about Babcock from 1956 and about another way you could have won, could you describe those cases and did that get addressed in the actual opinion? Yeah, sure. So Babcock was a case. Uh, it wasn't a case directly involving a takings challenge, but it involved a balancing of uh, private uh, property interests and also the union organizers' uh, interest in um, uh, telling others about their right to unionization. Um, you know, so Babcock drew a, drew a distinction, a balancing between the two under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, the problem with that application, that rule applied in this case, is that the California Agricultural Relations Act expressly provided that no balancing will take place, that the union organizers will have um, access to the grower's property no matter what the circumstances are. And so I think the court um, quite correctly did not analyze this under the balancing test. You know, I think Justice Kavanaugh noted in his concurring opinion that we would have won under that balancing test because the, uh, the growers' employees do not live on site. And in fact, union organizers did talk to them uh, at the hotels nearby uh, the property uh, during off work hours. So under the balancing test, we would have won, but we, you know, I think the court agreed with us that, that the balancing test really wasn't appropriate in a case like this. So with that, we'll um, take our next break and come back and talk about the dissent and where we go from here. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 41 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we want to change gears now and talk about the dissent in Cedar Point versus Hasid. Uh, when, what was the position of the dissenters? Uh, would they have ruled against your clients entirely, or would they have remanded the case for for uh, the district court to do some balancing? What what was the uh, what would have been the resolution of the matter by the dissent had they uh, carried the day? 
So the dissent would have ruled against our client uh, completely. Uh, it, it, it adopted the position of the Ninth Circuit in saying that this should be analyzed under the multi-factor balancing tests applicable to regulatory takings. And because we did not plead a cause of action under the multi-balancing factor analysis, uh, that would have been the end of the case for us. The dissent really, you know, uh, I think as the Ninth Circuit did, really placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that this was not 24-7, 365 access, but was limited in time. But I think the problem with both the dissent's approach and as well as the Ninth Circuit's approach was that they do not draw a clear line about, you know, the dissent says something like, this is a taking that goes too far, but they do not really tell us what kind of intrusion on the grower's property would have been uh, would have been uh, too far in their view. Would 120 days been too far? They do not say. And I think that's one of the benefits of the majority opinion is that it draws a much clearer bright line test than did the dissent. Yeah, I think at the oral argument, I may have been Justice Alito that asked, would, would 364 days be okay? Would 360 days be okay? Would 300, I mean, it's something like this. At what point do do we, is, is, is too much too much? And 120 isn't, according to the dissent, but what is? So right. That's exactly right. And I think a contrary rule, you know, if the dissent in the Ninth Circuit's rule had been adopted, I think that would encourage all types of gamesmanship by the government in placing sort of artificial limits, time limits on the degree of access taken so that they could continue to take access and take property rights without providing compensation for that taking. That, that sounds right. And uh, so now... You wanted the Supreme Court 6-3. Where does the case go from here? What happens next in the process? And can you tell us a little bit about that one? Sure. So this case was decided by the district court on a motion to dismiss. So surprisingly enough, after six years, the government still has not answered the complaint yet. So well, they will now. Yes. So now it is up to the defendants to um, answer the complaint, uh, which we expect to happen uh, shortly. And then we will proceed from there. Is the are the defendants just the government, or did you sue the unions as well? No, it's just the government, just the ALRB. Okay, so so that brings me to the next question, which is: Let's suppose so they answer the complaint. Uh, let's suppose that you know, I imagine there's going to be discovery on you know the extent of the taking and and how much damage is caused and this kind of thing. Who who would pay this compensation? Um, this case has always been a bit strange to me because the property is being taken for the use by a private party, not the government itself. So how do similar cases deal with this situation where, where um, you know, take the Kilo case, uh, you know, that was being taken for the purposes of Pfizer. Uh, New London presumably paid Miss Kilo for her pink house and Pfizer never built a plant, of course. But... Um, you know, how, how would how do you envision this working? The government's going to pay so that some private entity can come on to your client's property. Is, is that is that how this is going to shake out? Right. So when the government takes property, even if it takes it for the benefit of a third party, it's a government that pays here. Uh, we actually asked for injunctive and declaratory relief because uh, payment was uh, was unavailable to us under defendants' uh, sovereign immunity under the 11th Amendment. So I think that's actually another issue that is, uh, surprisingly enough, I think, 
uh, ripe for Supreme Court consideration over the next three to five years, whether a state's sovereign immunity uh, over, you know, uh, outweighs the state's duty to pay just compensation under the takings clause. So we're going to have a competition between the 14th Amendment and the 11th Amendment um, and the Fifth Amendment. And and we just saw the 11th Amendment gave way to the federal government's exercise of the Fifth Amendment taking power in the Penn East case. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, you we may could we see Cedar Point, too? (laughs) I I think we could. Um, I think in this case. Uh, injunctive relief would be proper, but I think what could happen after that is that the government could reenact a regulation that provides uh, some sort of compensation uh, or mechanism for compensation um, while at the same time providing access. But I think that would raise even yet another interesting question is whether this sort of taking would be acceptable uh, because it's for a public use or as some of our amicus Amiki argued whether this is a taking for a private use, and you know, even if the government paid compensation, it would still be barred. Well, and that's just it. Is I, as I, I've always wondered yeah. if this is a taking at all because it's not. It, it uh, what is the public? What is the, the the public has such a grand interest in people being members of the union? They can take someone's. Pro- I mean, maybe they do. Maybe that is. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if that a public use stand. I'm sorry. I, I've no. been. I, I, I'm really I, trying to figure out where this is going. No, I think I think you raised it earlier, Pat, about the, the the question of you know this is a union, but it's it, you sue the government, and so who pays compensation? And it does it does uh, raise some intriguing issues of is this a public use and public interest and all that all that stuff to begin with, right? Or is this a private taking and not not permitted because it's just really a private, you know, private actors are 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 taking property and using well, the government as the means to take it right through 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 a regulation or act i don't know go ahead when well i i think as as pat mentioned earlier you know there was a kilo decision which i think greatly expanded the public use requirement uh, in the takings clause but i think fortunately at least three justices uh, recently in a case involving chicago actually um, signaled their willingness to reconsider uh, the scope of the public use requirement. And I think, you know, if it were limited to its its proper bounds, then this would not be up for a public use and the taking would not be acceptable even with just compensation. Which was the, what was the Chicago case that you're referring to? Uh, it was the, the Eichner, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but the Eichner case it involved a uh, taking of private property in order to build a chocolate factory. Oh, right. that's the, okay. Okay. Got yeah. it. The, okay. Yep. The, the, the Bloomer chocolate factory. The Bloomer, Bloomer chocolate. It got right. it. Okay. Which I, I used to live not far from there and was blessed with the wonderful smell from the manufacturer, right? it's it's not far from the loop. It's it's in the West Loop, and uh, um, it, it, it you get a nice you get a you were talking about nuisances earlier, and I had the vision of pig farms. This is the opposite of that. Uh, if you're if you really like chocolate, so it just wafts towards downtown. It's quite wonderful. When I was in high school uh, for, during football practice, we had a uh, a uh, caramel or some kind of factory, and that that smell actually in the hot weather was actually not. Pleasant. It was, was as bad as pigs. 
And then in college, I was near a, a, a processing plant. So I've had both of those. And at least when it's 100 <laughs> degrees out when you're outside sweating, neither neither scent and, and aroma and fumes. Well, are, fortunately, are table grape growers and and strawberry growers don't don't do that. So right. uh, uh, when won't have to deal with uh, those kinds of uh, those kinds of issues. When are there are there anything else that we haven't talked about already about the case that you'd like to discuss? Um, it's a very interesting case, and congratulations to you and your firm on the on the victory. Yeah, certainly. You know, I think this was a, a very big case for property rights. Uh, it established a clear, bright line rule that. Uh, protects property rights and provides guidance for lower courts to protect the rights of property owners across the country. So I think this was, was a very important case. Our PLF's 13th victory before the Supreme Court of the United States, we actually won a GVR after that. So we now have uh, 14 uh, Supreme Court wins and looking forward to more uh, in the furtherance of individual liberty and property rights. Well, congrats to you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Sorry for some of the technical difficulties today. We're going to try to uh, work through those and uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Certainly. Thank you. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.